1: Most books about Civil War armies tell tales of battles and campaigns with a bit of background on the politics of the war mixed in. Professor John Matsui turns that model upside down in his study of the Union Army of Virginia, John Pope's short-lived command in the summer of 1862. The Army's campaign against Stonewall Jackson, its defeat at Second Bull Run, Are familiar stories told elsewhere, this book puts in the foreground the politics of the Army, from its commander to its rank and file, as it describes the First Republican Army, the Army of Virginia, and the radicalization of the Civil War. We'll talk with the author, Professor John Matsui, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited Crimes Against Humanity
0: o-w-i-c-z-g at e-c-u dot e-d-u. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Infirmary at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not from East Carolina University property tonight. And as always, not speaking for the university for whom I work, nor will my guest represent anyone but himself tonight, as we always do. Well, I'm broadcasting from home because as, uh, as last week, I'm still under the weather. After last week's show, I was persuaded to go to the doctor and confirm, yes, I have joined the National Flu Epidemic uh, officially uh, tested positive and for flu and some pneumonia as well. Uh, the the latter seems to be gone by now. I think antibiotics are taking care of that, but the flu is hanging on. I uh, to answer my mother's first question, yes, I did have the shot, uh, and as a result, the the uh, experience has not been as severe as as it could be. I'm not have not had that feeling where you you just wish wish you were dead, practically. I've heard people talk about it that way. Rather, it's just been enervating and sleeping a lot and uh, low energy, but able to carry on. Uh, Last week, uh, our guest, Mike Hill, did a wonderful job carrying the ball through the show, and I know our guest tonight will uh, entertain us as I uh, sit here in my... Uh, bundled up in, in in warm clothing and continuing to uh, soldier on with Civil War talk radio. Uh, being sick meant I could not have participated this past weekend in the uh, annual over-50 soccer tournament. Uh, I'd already decided not to play this season uh, as age starts to catch up with me. But it meant the first time in many years that I did not spend the first weekend in February out on the pitch with my elderly teammates, so I stayed home instead and uh, just watching TV and Sunday it turned out there was a football game on, which I watched. Uh, it was a really good game. Uh, very much enjoyed it, really close. Uh, uh, Philadelphia beat New England. and it it struck me they should try promoting this. I think they call it Super Bowl they should try promoting this uh, uh, more heavily because uh, it was really really quite an entertaining thing to watch, and having not seen one in in 10 years, uh, just something to throw out there for the NFL to think about. Uh, This past week also got a phone call from old friend of the show, uh, Keith Poulter, some of you may remember him from North and South Magazine, uh, which he edited for many years, a very Uh, In its heyday, by far the best of the Civil War magazines, and maybe you remember him even further back from uh, his his war game business ventures, Uh, he he called to say he has a new venture. He's written a novel called Shark, uh, with a Q instead of a K, I believe, uh, that he has recently published, and while it's not a Civil War-related venture, I'm happy to mention it uh, if you're interested in catching up with what he's doing and reading something interesting. I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm always happy to help out an old friend and toss a mention in there for that. Uh, another old friend sent an email to many people this week. This was uh, Professor Alan Gelzo at Gettysburg College. Uh, many of you have read his work, and he has himself been on the show before. He counts up Civil War books published each year informally, and uh Roughly, And he came up with 209 published in the year 2017, including books about the antebellum era, some reconstruction books. I'd say maybe 130 or so of the ones he listed were uh, focused sufficiently on the Civil War that they might be considered for this show. And of those, uh, at least a dozen have, in fact, already been featured on the show or have been scheduled to be on, including tonight's book, uh, a number of others were new editions of older books that have already been discussed here on Civil War Talk Radio. But I mention this to show that with uh, uh, at least 100 eligible new books coming out every year, we're in no danger of running out of topics here. If you've made a suggestion to me, and your suggestions are always welcome, uh, uh, for an author you'd like to have or a topic you'd like to see discussed, uh, please note, it if it hasn't shown up yet, it's not that I've ignored it or paid no attention. Uh, it may be in the queue, it may be uh, on the schedule coming up, or it may just be uh, way back in the line behind the other dozens and dozens uh, of books that come out every year that uh, seek a place on Civil War Talk Radio. And among those, coming up next week will be uh, a, a book looking forward to reading and discussing. It's Dan Croft's most recent book, Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery. It's about the 13th Amendment that was proposed in 1860, 61, uh, and we'll look at Lincoln's early involvement with that. On the 21st, another book from 2017 by Paula Whitaker is about Julia Wilbur, a civil life in an uncivil time. On the 28th, not an author, but a game designer will join us, uh, Eric Lee Smith. He's the designer of uh, a number of games about the American Civil War, and he has a new board game coming out, uh, maybe by the time he's on the show, called Battle Him, about the battles of Gettysburg and Pea Ridge. So we'll hear from him about that. And then it'll be March 7th. We'll take a break for spring break. Uh, Get out the tall glasses with umbrellas in them and fruit-flavored colored drinks and imagine we're somewhere in the South. Then back on the 14th of March, Matt Borowick returns to the show to talk about Civil War Roundtables. Uh, Michael Fitzgerald will be our guest the following week with his most recent book on uh, Reconstruction in Alabama, From Civil War to Redemption in the Cotton South, and we'll have more after that. You can find out about all these, as always, at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney tells us what's happening each month. You can also buy the books there, click through that website, and then buy whatever you're going to buy at Amazon, and that will support uh, Civil War Talk Radio. Or if you live in a place with a local brick-and-mortar bookstore, consider buying your books there. I should mention that more often. It's always important to support uh, local bookstores here in Greenville, North Carolina. We do have a Barnes and & Noble, and we have one uh, second-hand bookstore, a very modest uh, stock. Uh, a fair number of the books on the shelf are actually mine, I think, when I go there every time I remember having taken them there. Uh, we're, we're not blessed with great bookstores here, so if you have one where you live, uh, don't let it get away. Uh, support that local bookstore. Tonight we talk about the Army of Virginia, uh, <clears throat> Army of Virginia, not the Army of Northern Virginia. That. Uh, everyone knows about. This is the one that only people listening to this show have heard of. The Army commanded by John Pope in the summer of 1862. It's the subject of a recent book called The First Republican Army, The Army of Virginia and the Radicalization of the Civil War. The author is John H. Matsui, and we welcome him to the show. Professor Matsui, are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Here. Uh, So uh, you and I have just communicated by email, haven't met, uh, but uh, I hope you don't mind going by first names. Please call me Jerry. Uh, And my first question is often uh, the same one. Ask about your day job. Uh, Tell us what you do when you're not writing about the Army of Virginia.
3: Well, when I'm not writing about the Army of Virginia, I'm in uniform, at least Monday through Friday. Uh, I teach at the Virginia Military Institute in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. Uh, so I teach uh, future uh, military officers, as well as teachers, engineers, and uh, and other uh, residents of the Commonwealth of Virginia.
1: What is that like? I'm I'm curious about VMI about the the students and their. What, what, what's your impression of them compared to students at other places, maybe where you, where you did your graduate work or did your undergraduate studies?
3: Right. So I'm actually from Silicon Valley uh, in Northern California, so, you know, a part of the country that's all about the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went to college in New Jersey and uh, grad school in Baltimore Uh, So as an assistant professor at the VMI, as they like to say here, uh, it's my first time really interacting with, uh, you know, a majority of students who are from south of the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, And actually, it might be a surprise to your audience to know that uh, only a little bit over half of the cadets actually commission into the military.
4: Hmm. The Uh, uh, the other half, many of them
3: join the uh, the National Guard or Reserve, uh, but many of them, again, become uh, police officers, firefighters. Uh, government officials, you know, uh, work for the uh, Virginia Department of Transportation or VDOT. Uh, so it's quite the uh, the cross section of society that they're entering after they graduate. You
1: no, know, you no. Know, uh, Dave Powell, a Civil War historian, is a VMI graduate. The, um, the VMI obviously played a, a role in the war itself. Everybody listening to the show knows about the Battle of New Market. Uh, what did, is, is there a level of interest among your students in Civil War history compared to other places, do you think? I think that's
3: certainly fair to say. I mean, I, the most obvious other place would be uh, you know, Gettysburg College, for example. Uh, uh-huh. The difference, of course, being that the cadets here pride themselves. And I, I, I don't know that they're entirely correct, but you know, the, the tradition is that uh, the cadet corps or corps of cadets uh, is the only American college where all of this, the entire student body – Hmm. fought together in, an, in a battle, uh, of course, at New Market in this case.
1: Interesting. So, um, and, and, of course, uh, in the last couple of years, the memory of the Civil War has become a hotly contested public issue, and I imagine that has repercussions on your campus as well.
3: Yes, uh, certainly. Charlottesville is only about an hour away by car, uh, and mm-hmm. on the other side of the hill from VMI, you have Washington and Lee university uh, and you have, you know, statues on both campuses or posts, uh, you know, depicting either Robert E. Lee or, uh, or Stonewall Jackson. Uh, so mm-hmm. yes, the, the civil war is definitely a live issue.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it is uh, obviously a live issue to everyone listening here. That's why we're here. And uh, your book on the Army of Virginia takes a a different uh, approach than many others. Uh, We'll get into it in detail in our second segment with a few minutes in our first segment. Let me ask, what what brought you to the topic in the first place?
3: Well, so to paraphrase uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., and I'm sure you've never heard this phrase on the show before, uh, through our great good fortune, In Our Youth, Our Hearts Were Touched With Fire. Ah, yes. And uh, my heart was touched twice. Uh, First of all, at age 12, when I read a novel called The Killer Angels, which, again, I'm sure has never been brought up uh, before on the show. (laughs) Uh, And then from that moment onward, I read every Civil War book I could uh, get my hands on, again, in California, of all places. Uh, And as a result of this, uh, by age 18, uh, I knew I wanted to study under James McPherson. And so that's what took me to New Jersey. Uh, wow. And if there's still a minute or so left, uh, Please, yeah. from, from from the beginning, I was thinking, okay, well, what kind of Civil War-related senior thesis can I do with him? Uh, and as my friends put it, I, I wore him out. I was in his office every week uh, for the next four years, uh, and he actually retired the same year we graduated. Uh, but if I started with Civil War sharpshooters, you know, Burdan sharpshooters, something very tactical... Uh, by senior year, I, I thought that John Pope was a fascinating character, uh, namely you know, that he was a Republican anti-slavery West Point graduate in comparison to most other uh, Union generals who were professional soldiers in, in 1862. Uh, and so I thought I would devote uh, my senior thesis to the lead-up to emancipation in 1862, and John Pope, of course, played a large role in that.
1: And I'm, I'm Assuming then this, this moved on to become your dissertation eventually, and, as well as your first book.
3: Actually, it did not. Uh, so my, really? my graduate school days are a tale of two books or two book projects. So the dissertation well, was actually on, uh, uh, on the anti-slavery movement mm-hmm. uh, in a transnational context, so Britain and the United States, uh, and interracial friendship within the movement. Uh, so long story short looking at black and white abolitionists uh, who are seeking to create a multiracial or at least biracial society uh, via friendship across the color line.
1: Very interesting. Well, that that uh, that's why we do the show. The, the, the You don't always know the answers to questions before you ask them. We're going to take a short break, come back and talk more with Professor John Matsui, author of the Army of uh, the First Republican Army, uh, the Army of Virginia, and the Radicalization of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
4: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast all
0: the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts.
2: VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around
0: the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. Creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in the sea around us, said, All at last, return to the sea. that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U. Now,
1: back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with John Matsui, author of The First Republican Army. It's a study of John Pope's Army of Virginia. Uh, John, this book is what I would call inside baseball. Uh, it, it is for people who know something about the Civil War. Uh, there's an expectation that the reader will have an idea of what was going on in the summer of 1862 uh, with the, the Peninsula campaign winding down, then the uh, Cedar Mountain and Second Manassas campaigns following. Could you give us some of that background uh, for, for listeners who are not Immediately up on, on the, the situation, what the, the tell us about the environment of the the Army of Virginia, where it came from?
3: I'd be happy to. So the the first thing to make uh, to mention, of course, is that you know by June of 1862, George McClellan, commander of the Army of the Potomac, right, with you know 100,000 plus men, uh, is how, ever so slowly advancing on Richmond uh, mm-hmm. and the main Confederate army. Uh, But in the meantime, of course, you know, McClellan being on the peninsula, uh, he's left Washington, D.C. more or less undefended. Uh, He claims to uh, President Lincoln and Secretary of War Stanton that he's left something like 75,000 men uh, to defend Washington in case uh, Joseph Johnston and then later Robert E. Lee uh, choose to take advantage of the fact that he's done an amphibious end run. Uh, Unfortunately, he seems to have counted twice. Uh, which he also tends to do when he's counting enemy soldiers. Uh, and as a result, uh, Lincoln and Stanton discover to their horror uh, that there are you know, maybe thirty to 35,000 men actually defending Washington. Uh, and in the meantime, of course, in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, Stonewall Jackson, uh, with less than 20,000 men, uh, is harrying 50,000 or more Union soldiers. Uh, so in other words, while McClellan is dilly-dallying on his way to Richmond, uh, Jackson, uh, is making a hash of, of Union forces in the valley, which of course, uh, leads to great anxiety, uh, in Washington. Uh, and so long story short, as of the, uh, late June, President Lincoln decides, okay, what, in fighting war by remote control in the valley, trying to coordinate three different armies or army corps, uh, in chasing Jackson around, this did not work. Uh, and so therefore we need someone to be in charge. So on the one hand, they bring in uh, Henry Halleck uh, from the Western theater to act as a sort of chief of staff uh, who's supposed to oversee both what McClellan is doing near Richmond and the forces defending Washington. Uh, on the other hand, Halleck is, is very academic, not very keen to make executive decisions. And so they also bring in John Pope uh, and Pope, is fresh off of a, a seemingly bloodless Union victory in taking Island Number Ten on the Mississippi River, so part of the Union uh, Anaconda Plan campaign to strangle the Confederacy by controlling the entire river, uh, the Mississippi. And so, by capturing seven thousand Confederate soldiers while losing, you know, a few hundred of his own, uh, he gives uh, Washington and Lincoln a highly needed victory uh, in. 1862 in the West after the bloodbath at Shiloh.
1: So he's he's brought in charge to take over these soldiers that are defending Washington, uh, both directly in front of Washington and scattered throughout the Shenandoah Valley in western Virginia. Uh, tell us more about Pope. You mentioned in the first segment he was a West Pointer, but uh, but had anti-slavery views.
3: Right. Um, For one thing, of course, uh, Pope, like Lincoln, uh, has
1: Kentucky roots. Uh,
3: And his father uh, was a a judge and would have overseen a number of uh, lawyer Lincoln's early cases uh, in Illinois. And, of course, there are also uh, marriage ties uh, via uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife uh, to the Pope family. And so Pope actually uh, was part of the uh, the. The officers detailed to escort President-elect Lincoln eastward uh, to Washington. Uh, so again, in that regard, uh, Pope has you know familial as well as political ties to Lincoln. Unlike a lot of uh, Democratic West Point generals like uh, McClellan, and uh, in fact, he uh, is even actually under arrest uh, as Lincoln is being inaugurated for attacking. Uh, superior officers and their conservative or democratic views. Uh, So in that regard, again, you know, Pope, uh, you wouldn't call Pope an abolitionist, uh, certainly a Republican uh, and someone who by the spring of 1862 acknowledges that slavery is doomed, uh, while McClellan at the same time uh, is going to be lecturing Lincoln to avoid making uh, the war a revolution by touching slavery,
1: but rather to conduct it on limited Christian grounds so you, you've got uh, uh, Pope coming out to take over this army uh, bringing with him a legacy of victory say at Island number 10 now historically most accounts talk about how boastful Pope was and how his soldiers you know rolled their eyes when he, he showed up making proclamations about what he was going to do but your research seems to suggest that's actually a, a kind of post-war revisionism. They, they didn't really respond like that. I thought that was quite right. interesting. So,
3: so two points. First of all, you know, one can compare his bombast, so to speak, uh, with McClellan's.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Right? So McClellan's, since at least, you know, November of 1861, uh, is emulating Napoleon uh, in his decrees to his men. Uh, so in that regard, again, I think it's, you know, it's unfair to, to talk about Pope's bombast uh, without noting that McClellan you know, makes similar statements uh, over a much longer period of time.
1: So this, this is this is what Pope does. Or this is what all commanders do. This is how people talk. I don't know
3: about all commanders, but certainly, you know, commanders of volunteer soldiers uh, who are politically minded, politically active, um, and also uh, in terms of my my sources, one of the things I, I attempted to do in this book was to emphasize contemporary sources, right? So in other words, it's very easy to find veterans critical of Pope and his rhetoric after Second Manassas, right, or after the war. Uh, Whereas if you emphasize the sources, you know, the diary entries or the letters written home or to to local newspapers from uh, July and August of 1862, I think there's a clear uh, sign that volunteer soldiers, volunteer officers are either hopeful that at least you know, Pope represents a breath of fresh air or a kind of radical uh, ideology that's missing or has been missing in Virginia so far, uh, and, of course, a, a, a disregard or a distrust of other West Point generals. Uh, the, the real dissent within the army comes from the professionals, uh, so from the minority of West Point generals like Marcina Patrick uh, in McDowell's Corps who again are you know friends with McClellan or or sympathetic to McClellan's ideology, and therefore you know even in the moment uh, are are not happy with what Pope is saying.
1: But the troops themselves are, are ready for a new look. Uh, that uh, I, as I was reading it, I was struck. Comparing it to an army that I wrote about, the Army of the Ohio under Don Carlos Buell, at just about the same time in the war, the soldiers were growing very tired of Buell's policy of protecting the property of southern slaveholders, uh, of defending southern civilians against northern soldiers. And they were, were eager for a leader who would bring a harder hand of war onto the southern civilians. And just at that moment, that's when Pope is showing up here at the Army of Virginia, and uh, the letters and diaries you quote suggest soldiers are glad for it.
3: Indeed. Uh, and of course, you know, looking forward a couple months from, from August of 62, I think it's, it's very interesting that Lincoln waits until after the elections of 1862 in November at the state level to sack not only George McClellan, but also Don Carlos Buell. Uh, on yes. the grounds again that neither of them are aggressive enough, and now the damage has been done. Right, the Democrats have made a number of gains in terms of uh, of governorships, uh, as well as in in seats in Congress. And now that you know firing them is no longer going to hurt the uh, the election results, uh, he gets rid of both of them
1: at that time. So the army that Pope takes over uh, is is a new organization. It's pulled together from separate. Uh, Our army corps and departments that have been fighting on their own. Uh, And there are three corps that make up this army. Tell us about the people in charge of those, uh, the the three main subunits of Pope's army. Happy to do so,
3: because certainly it would be uh, disingenuous to claim that an army is Republican or Democratic simply on the basis of the commanding general. Mm -hmm. Uh, But adding to that evidence would be the fact that all three corps commanders, again, they used to be, you know, department commanders or, or quote-unquote army commanders who were chasing Jackson and getting chased by him in turn uh, during the spring. Uh, but two of the three uh, are out-and-out out Republican uh, politicians. Uh, so one of them is John Charles Fremont, uh, who, of course, was the first Republican presidential candidate in 1856. Uh, and he's in, you know, he's in charge of forces in Western Virginia, or what will, uh, as of January 1st, 1863, be West Virginia. Uh, and he, like Pope, uh, was previously stationed in Missouri in 1861, uh, where both of them, of course, were dealing with mostly guerrilla uh, opposition. And so both of them would have learned uh, a, a desire to apply what uh, Mark Grimsley would call the hard hand of war uh, upon civilian populations that aid and abet guerrillas. Uh, so that's Fremont uh, in charge of the first corps of the, of the new army. Uh, and the second corps, the smallest corps, is led by Nathaniel Prentice Banks uh, from Massachusetts. And he actually was a governor uh, of Massachusetts uh, in the antebellum years uh, and, of course, was the first uh, Republican Speaker of the House uh, in the mid-1850s. So he's actually been elected. Uh, he, would, I, he would certainly not be considered a radical Republican by any means. Uh, but he's certainly a a Republican partisan as well as a a political general. Uh, And then the third is actually a West Point graduate, uh, Irvin McDowell, uh, who, of course, had the very bad luck uh, of losing to his West Point classmate at first Manassas Uh, and uh, is oftentimes seen by historians as a Democrat uh, in his political leanings, at least in 1861. But certainly by the spring and summer of 62, he is persona non grata,
1: uh, with McClellan and his closest friends. So these three. Uh, well, you mentioned Fremont, uh, but Fremont almost immediately resigns. He's not willing to serve under Pope, uh, who is his junior. Exactly,
3: and and there you run into the problem of uh, you know even non-West Point generals uh, basically saying I, I demand to only serve under those uh, who were promoted before I, before myself. So in other words, if Pope was previously my subordinate. Uh, I don't want to work with him uh, over me. Uh, so yes, that, that is the irony, yeah, that, that Fremont would be in command of the, of the new First Corps, but because he resigns, uh, he is then replaced by another political general, uh, Franz Siegel, uh, who of course is a revolutionary from the, uh, the German revolutions of 1848. Uh, and uh, of course, all VMI cadets know who he is because he's in their rat Bible, uh, as the general who is trounced uh, at Newmarket in 1864. And Siegel uh, is you know, not only a partisan Republican, uh, but certainly anti-slavery, as are many of the other uh, German revolutionaries who serve in the First Corps of the Army of Virginia.
1: It, it's worth noting here, uh, for listeners who perhaps know Gettysburg back and forth, but not so well Army of Virginia, that 1st that Corps of the Army of Virginia is what will become 11th Corps of the Army of the Potomac later in the war. Uh, the the German-American Corps. Is that not correct? That, yeah, exactly correct. And, and there have been some uh, works on that
3: corps uh, by Christian Keller and I think more recently recent, still James Pulla.
1: Yes, uh, Chris has been on the show and I, I hope to have the uh, the next author on sometime Soon, it's an interesting organization. Obviously, the 11th Corps with its German Americans. Uh, likewise, Banks's 2nd Corps becomes the 12th Corps of the Army of the Potomac, and McDowell's Corps is the original 1st Corps and, and reverts to that. Uh, so it's got westerners like the Iron Brigade in it. And you, you mentioned that that has a, makes some difference too. That this Army of Virginia has western troops, not like uh, unlike the Army of the Potomac. Exactly.
3: Uh, and first of all, in terms of, you know, what will eventually be the hard luck 11th Corps, uh, under Pope, there is not that, the sense of, you know, that this is, these are the runaways, right, the cowards. So again, they, you know, if, if you're not going to read history backwards, you know, they, they, they don't march to Chancellorsville uh, under a pall, right? So unlike the routes at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, they don't necessarily excel on the battlefield under Pope, but they don't perform any worse. Uh, awesome. than the other Union soldiers. Uh, in terms of Westerners, yes, I, I think it's important to note that the Army of the Potomac at that time has very few regiments uh, from you know, beyond the eastern seaboard. I mean, you have the 1st Minnesota, for example, uh, I think the, uh, the 39th Illinois or the Garibaldi Guards, I believe they're called. Uh, awesome. But excluding those, right, very few regiments that are not coming from Philadelphia, New York City, right, New England, et cetera, on the East Coast, uh, whereas Pope's army, uh, you know, about uh, up to about a third of the regiments are from uh, what I call the border states, right? Unionist Western Virginia uh, or Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, Indiana, et cetera. And, this and for me, that's a salient the point because, you know, it, a- I'm sure uh, uh, classicists, and uh, historians of the French Revolution might take, uh, take umbrage at my calling this uh, the first Republican army, uh, considering, you know, Roman Republican armies or the French Revolutionary armies. Uh, but in, in, in a North American context, uh, the army uh, at, the, at the grassroots or common soldier level is much more representative of the white Northerners who vote for Lincoln in 1860 right so the the Republican majority north of the Mason-Dixon line compared to uh, the Army of the Potomac under McClellan, uh, which involved a lot of uh, of cities uh, and a lot of northern cities where again the vote would have gone for uh, Stephen
1: Douglas rather than Lincoln. So the army is is Republican both in its politics and in the sense of representing the Republic. Uh, in a way that the Army of the Potomac is not. We'll talk more with our guest, John Mansui, in just a minute about the Army of Virginia under John Pope when we come back after a short break. This is... I am Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ECU.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with John Matsui, author of The First Republican Army the Army of Virginia and the radicalization of the Civil War. We've been talking about John Pope's Army of Virginia, the Union Army, in the summer of 1862, its uh, contrast with the Army of the Potomac, the politics of its leaders, the Western background of many of its men, uh, and uh, perhaps most significantly, we should talk about, uh, John, the, the policy of of John Pope towards Southern civilians. This is what Pope is is best uh, famous or notorious for his declarations that uh, soldiers would no longer protect southern civilian property, that southern uh, civilians might be forced to take an oath of loyalty or or get out from behind Union lines. Uh, Tell us about uh, Pope's policy. How how was that received by his army uh, and how did it work out?
3: Indeed. Well, it, it's important to note that Pope spends almost a month uh, between being appointed to command of the new army and actually arriving to take command in person, uh, hobnobbing with Republican politicians in Washington, including the Committee on the Conduct of the War, or Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. And so he is acting hand in hand with radical Republicans who begin passing a number of harsher decrees and laws in, the, in that summer, uh, Second Confiscation Act, etc., which then empower him uh, and his men uh, to confiscate slaves or contraband, right, wherever they are, and potentially, of course, uh, arm them for future use uh, as soldiers, potentially, uh, but also to confiscate any private property uh, that is deemed uh, useful for the war. Now, of course, uh, for many common soldiers, again, they've been away from home uh, for most of a the year. Uh, they're tired. They're angry. Why are we still uh, on occupation duty? So for many of them, right, this is an opportunity to loot uh, and or just take their frustration out by, you know, stealing fence rails uh, for fires. Uh, so in that regard, you know, Pope, it, Pope does see the problem of soldiers going overboard or, or at least uh, taking maximum uh, you know discretion or leniency when it comes to the to the rules. Uh, on the other hand, Pope, unlike McClellan, does see that slaves and slavery are material uh, aids to the Confederate war effort. And one of the lessons, of course, that he learned in Missouri uh, the previous year is that when you're dealing with guerrillas and spies, right, one possible effective counterinsurgency me- uh, measure would be to hold local uh, civilian communities responsible for burned bridges, uh, et cetera. So, you know, you have this sense, unlike in McClellan's army, that the war is uh, being carried on not only by Confederate armies, but by the civilians that provide them food and shelter. Uh, And therefore, it's time to take the war home to the civilian population. And again, the more radical members of Congress uh, are in agreement.
1: So, rather than attempt to win their hearts and minds with kindness, the uh, uh, Pope's experience in Missouri and elsewhere has taught him that's that's futile. The, these people are resisting us, and need to be defeated. The uh, you point out also that this means Pope is able to make more effective use of uh, of contrabands of escaped slaves as a source of military intelligence. Yes, this
3: is certainly true. Uh the, the evidence I have found is that he, uh, he is using uh, escaped slaves as sources of intelligence, but also uh, spies uh, at various levels. So, you know, spies employed not only by army headquarters, but at the core level. Uh, and so, there, again, you know, th- there seems to be in contrast to McClellan's just you know, facile assumptions that Johnston and Lee have twice as many men as he does. Uh, Pope is seeking, uh, in conjunction with incredibly more aggressive cavalry tactics, uh, under men like John Buford, who of course will gain immortal fame at Gettysburg the next year, uh, to really uh, aggressively pursue intelligence and and which, of course, is part of the larger larger offensive intention uh, of taking the war not only to civilians but also to uh, the confederate army right in other words to uh, to take the kid gloves off at all levels
1: it, it's interesting you may, the point you make about cavalry was interesting that uh, you know, Pope does not get credit for a lot of things, but it is centralization of of scattered cavalry units into uh, effective brigades was a step forward for the Union cavalry, and it does pay dividends at Gettysburg uh, later, as as you point out. Uh, let me ask you a question about sources you used for writing a book like this when when trying to find the politics of an army. Uh, what What sources were most useful?
3: Well, so from, from my perspective, I was looking for, again, contemporary materials from June, July, August of 1862. Uh, and so as a result, I was trying to get a mixture, of course, of volunteer soldiers and volunteer officers. Uh, and, you know, part of the politics of this army is not just that they are Republican or effectively anti-slavery, uh, but also the, the intramural politics of seeking rank, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, NCOs seeking to be officers, colonels seeking to become generals. And so taking a look at, you know, a lot of colonels, the colonels, you know, the, the, the higher-ranking um, volunteer officers are, are definitely overrepresented, uh, but seeing uh, a number of them as politically active. So, for example, Major Rufus Dawes of the 6th Wisconsin, what later becomes part of the Iron Brigade, uh, you know, he is as is, is heavily Democratic uh, in his view, so a little more ambivalent about whether or not Pope's Republican decrees are going to be useful in the long term. On the other hand, you have far more uh, Republican and radical uh, officers like Lucius Fairchild, uh, who later becomes a, an elected official in uh, Wisconsin after the war. And so you're seeing uh, either in their papers or in their soldiers' uh, letters evidence of political speeches uh, as well as uh, comments about uh, officers being kicked out of posts like, you know, Provost Marshal for Fredericksburg on the basis of being too conservative or too radical uh, when it comes to uh, freeing slaves or how lenient you are to pro Confederate civilians versus defending the rights of, of unionists in places like Fredericksburg.
1: So there, there really is a sense then in, in these Letters and, and, and diaries that these soldiers are, are keenly aware of the politics of the era. That this is not simply a, 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 a an adventure. Uh, they they're not simply out uh, to to hang out with their their comrades. Uh, that they they are politically motivated as well as as motivated by general patriotism and what they're doing. Um, let me ask you about the, the campaign of, of Second Manassas uh, for which Pope is, is most uh, remembered. When, when uh, Stonewall Jackson uh, launches his, his maneuvers against Pope's army and, and surround, uh, gets behind it, uh, by this time the Army of the Potomac has been ordered to essentially disperse and, and send its units piecemeal to reinforce Pope. And you write about the two units that arrive: Burnside's Corps and uh, uh, then the Corps of, of Porter and heinzelman uh, how, how do these mix when, when units from a Democratic army, the Army of the Potomac, uh, are sent to reinforce the Republican Army of Virginia?
3: Well, the, the easy answer would be to say oil and water. Uh, but there, you know, there is a difference. Um, you know, so let's focus on the, the two corps that are from the Army of the Potomac. Uh, so, uh-huh. the Third Corps under Heinzelman, who, of course, is also seen as a Republican, right? He's, uh, he's someone who, you know, voluntarily goes to see uh, abolitionists like uh, Frederick Douglass uh, speak in the in the years before the war. And again, so he's not one of the men that, that McClellan actually wanted to be one of his corps commanders to begin with. Uh, uh-huh. And then. Uh, and, of course, uh, two of his, his two division commanders uh, are some of the most aggressive combat commanders uh, in the Army of the Potomac at the time. Uh, so one-armed Phil Kearney uh, and the West Point graduate Joseph Hooker, uh, who, of course, will later have uh, dictatorial aspirations uh, that Lincoln is well aware of, uh, versus the Fifth Corps. Uh, so the 5th Corps is led by Fitz John Porter, one of McClellan's two closest friends in the Army. 5th uh, Corps, of course, also has the one regular Army division, or at least two brigades of it. So you know the, the single biggest concentration of regular troops uh, in any Union Army, uh, certainly in 1862. So in other words, uh, the 5th Corps is uh, a bastion of West Point professionalism and McClellanite conservatism. Uh, and you can actually read the, uh, the correspondence that Fitz John Porter is sending to McClellan while he's, uh, you know, reinforcing Pope. You know, everything is at sixes and sevens. Uh, and so, you know, again, will be taken uh, by radical Republicans like Secretary of War Stanton as evidence of treason uh, on both, uh, or at least, you know, malpractice at the minimum by both Fitz John Porter and McClellan. Uh, as opposed to the Third Corps, where, again, you have very few West Point generals uh, in the in the command structure. Uh, and a lot of politicians, again, you've got, you know, uh, Daniel Sickles may not be involved in this campaign, but again, you have, right, Tammany Hall Democrats and, and the Excelsior Brigade from New York. Uh, so you have the most professional and the least professional uh, corps from the army joining Pope. And I think it's fair to say, long story short, that Hooker and Kearney, uh, are looking for, uh, more aggressive leadership. Kearney, in particular, in what will be, of course, his last campaign, uh, is, is fed up with McClellan's cautiousness on the peninsula and is hopeful, uh, that Pope will be a, f- a breath of fresh air and of, you know, his rhetoric certainly seems, right, that, that glory lie in the advance, whereas disaster and shame lie in the retreat. Uh, so Kearney, at least, is hopeful. Uh, that this is a new hard hand of war, a new, you know, Republican war, or a total war uh, in a certain sense.
1: Now, Porter, on the other hand, uh, as you say, his correspondence shows that he's he's very much McCollum's man. Uh, over the past summer, I read the uh, the the court the the commission proceedings on the uh, the trial of Fitzgerald Porter, who is is uh, uh, charged with with uh, disobeying. Pope's orders during the Battle of Second Manassas. I'm curious what your view is of of that. Um, did was he guilty of more than a bad attitude? Do you think uh, did he actually deserve to be sacked?
3: Well, I, I certainly uh, view Porter as uh, worthy of sacking. Um, I mean, he was certainly a scapegoat, right? That mm-hmm. that's certainly true, right, Brad? Right. You you couldn't get McClellan out at that moment. You know, once Pope has lost at Second Manassas, right? Lee's army is threatening Washington and then marching into Maryland, and That's so Lincoln it. acknowledges, right? You know, yeah, a lot of a lot of his cabinet members are saying McClellan should be shot, uh, but Lincoln it. acknowledges, of course, that you know the army no longer trusts Pope, and the men, right, believe that McClellan, you know, is still a good general, right? They still love him, right. uh, and so Lincoln bows to the, you know, to the inevitable. Uh, in terms of again, you know, politics being the art of the possible, and basically, okay, I, you know, we need to go with the man that the, that the soldiers actually believe in. Okay. Uh, I think on the one hand, yeah, there, there was going to be a scapegoat, so Porter ended up being the scapegoat for McClellan uh, out of necessity. Um, I think the real guilty party here is McClellan um, okay. i don't I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but you know, one of the things I find uh, amazing is that, again, as of uh, early September, McClellan writes in a, in a letter to his wife. And anyone who wants to get a, a, a an understanding into McClellan should look into the re- the letters he writes to his wife uh, about yes. Lincoln as, you know, the or, what the uh, a gorilla or the original baboon, yes. right, Which you know puts in mind uh, general other generals like MacArthur uh, and potentially McChrystal, or at least his staff. Uh, but, right? McClellan confesses to his wife in that letter that my enemies are utterly defeated. And whom does he mean in early September? Not Lee, Uh, not Jackson, but rather John Pope. Uh, And so clearly, again, right, McClellan sees this as a war, uh, not only a war, you know, with Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia, but a war with the Army of Virginia and John Pope uh, and the kind of Republican uh, revolutionary
1: war uh, that McClellan lectures Lincoln to avoid. So uh, someone's going to pay the price for that, and Porter turns out to be that one. Um, let me ask you the Civil War time machine question in our last two minutes. Uh, if you could travel back to the era that you've studied for 30 minutes, who would you want to talk to, and what would you ask him or her?
3: <laughs> uh, well, the temptation to meet Pope and see how you know egotistical and or bombastic he really was mm-hmm. – It would have to be uh, Abraham Lincoln. And uh, if I can suggest a specific, you know, time frame, it would actually be 1862. Uh, It would be July of 1862, because, you know, at this point, he's confessed to his cabinet uh, that he is ready and willing and wanting to issue a preliminary emancipation proclamation. Uh, however, right, I believe it's, uh, it's either Seward or Stanton says to him that to do it now when we're, we're, we're experiencing a run of, of losses on the battlefield would sound like the last shriek on the retreat. Uh, and so That's I would funny. want to talk to him in that summer of 1862, not necessarily about Pope, uh, but certainly in terms of, you know, how did he come to this, uh, this belief, right? You know, where he, he takes office by right, pledging to defend the Constitution uh, and, you know, and the Republican platform of no new slave states. Uh, on the other hand, again, what, what is it really uh, that gets him to that point in August or July of 1862?
1: That is a really good question. Uh, as uh, Everybody wants uh, a piece of Lincoln, as, as we say, in the Lincoln world. Well, Listeners, you will want a piece of this book, The First Republican Army, The Army of Virginia, and the Radicalization of the Civil War. It's a very interesting look at the politics of the Civil War uh, 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 through a very careful lens, looking at one of the most politically active armies. Uh, The author, John Mansui, was our guest tonight. John, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And listeners, as always...